Hello, and welcome to The Framing Effect. I'm your host, Jerry Zhang. This show seeks to view the incredible implications of behavioral economics and business through undiscovered lenses. The Framing Effect in the context of behavioral economics is a term describing the fluidity of information. By framing the how, when, and where information is communicated, we will see how seemingly unrelated events and people are all connected by the overarching forces of different industries. Join me in conversations with experts in fields not traditionally business-affiliated to find out how the decisions of individuals may affect the world. On our third episode of The Framing Effect, Dr. Shun Tang, Henry S. Fox Senior Professor of Economics at Rice University and Principal Economist for Amazon Scholars, explains the field of econometrics, his own research, and how math can be used to analyze people's daily decisions. Welcome, Dr. Tang. How are you doing today? Thank you, Jerry. Thanks for the invitation. And hi, everyone. Uh, it's a pleasure to be here. Thank you so much for taking the time today. Thank now, you. We should just jump right into it. Mm-hmm. You are a primarily a professor of econometrics. And compared to economics as a general study, which is traditionally seen as more of a humanities subject, econometrics is more like statistics, right? You use a lot more statistical techniques to empirically justify like theoretical uh, economics. Could you describe the field of econometrics and some applications used by it? Yeah, sh- yes, sure. Um, so yes, uh, Jerry, what you said is uh, very uh, accurate. So economics, uh, broadly speaking, it's a field of social science. It studies how individuals and firms and institutions in general interact with each other, uh, given all sorts of incentives and constraints. Um, So the field of econometrics in particular, it's about, as you said, applying statistical tools for analyzing economics data. So there are multiple goals for doing econometric analysis. Um, For example, one goal would be to uh, let the data test some theoretical models. So for example, um, we can take the uh, econometric model to test whether some auction theory model is actually a correct description of how people behave. So basically on the one hand, you have economic theory, Uh, which tells you that if everyone is behaving rationally, um, then what would be their optimal strategy and what is a meaningful equilibrium. And then on the other hand, you see these field data. And then the natural question to ask is whether those economic models are actually supported by the data. And this is where econometrics can come in to help you Namely, you can establish the econometric models and put the theory to tests. So that's um, uh, one goal of econometrics. Another um, common goal is to use the data to learn about the parameters in people's incentives and preferences. Uh, Again, we can stick with the auction theory model. So in the data, you see how people place in different kinds of auctions. So you could think of uh, like um, used car auctions or art item auctions. Um, depending on the format of the auction, uh, people are expected to behave differently according to theory. And uh, an econometric analysis uh, means that um, you are going to start with the assumption that people are 
behaving rationally according to equilibrium strategy, and then you take the data and try to learn about people's preferences going into those auctions. So in this case, preferences means how much individuals privately evaluate the objects that that's being auctioned. So these are the two very common goals for econometric analysis. Uh, one is to test economic theory, and the other is to let the data help you learn about people's incentives. From a broader scale, the auction theory model you were talking about before, would that be applicable to like game theory or that kind of field? Yeah, so uh, auction theory is uh, a branch of game theory. It's a, a specific um, a type of game theory that analyzes how um, players, so in this case, bidders compete against each other given their private informations. Um, so game theory is a much broader concept. Um, auction theory is like um, a relatively small um, compartment of mm -hmm. game theory. Yeah. Yeah. It's, a, it's like a very interesting field of study to be able to use math to connect. Um, it's like doing a simulation of what real people would do in these kind of scenarios. Uh, another question I have is a lot of the more advanced techniques used within uh, econometrics require heavy computation, um, especially with like large data sets and uh, Bayesian like processes. So do you ever use machine learning to like optimize your research? Uh, that that's a very good question, Jerry. Um, so for for the projects that I have finished and published, and the ongoing projects, so far I haven't had um, very um, uh, pronounced parts of uh, machine learning uh, in my research. Um, that's definitely on my to do list. Um, so you you are right in that. Um, most of my uh, researches would uh, involve some heavy computing, um, but in the case of my published papers and working projects, these are not exactly big data projects uh, in the sense that we uh, these projects do not require um, recovering complex relationships uh, given a very large number of explanatory variables. Um, so in a way, most of my projects are about um, how you can identify individual incentives given a relatively straightforward model. Um, so the emphasis is about breaking down the economic model and how you can use the model to establish a link between the data and uh, the parameters you want to learn from the model. So as far as my research is concerned so far, I don't have a very big, uh, very uh, obvious uh, machine learning elements, um, but that's definitely on my to-do list. So um, I'm glad you asked this question, Jerry. Um, so machine learning techniques are becoming more and more useful, um, especially because nowadays we have um, easier accesses to bigger data sets. And, and by that, I mean, you have data sets that have not just a large number of observations, but also a large number of explanatory variables. So you would need more sophisticated tools 
to recover um, complex relationship between the variables. So um, it's becoming a more more useful statistical tool. Um, so um, I'm actually actively trying to incorporate machine learning aspects into my teaching and, and with a view, hopefully, also um, do more research in machine learning. Um, but so far, um, it's it's uh, about incorporating that into teaching. Uh, my research projects does not have much machine learning elements at this point. Mm. It's very interesting because of how like nuanced the field is. You can kind of uh, like what you said about how your projects are trying to establish a link between the direct uh, explanatory variables and the data. And then on the other end, you have um, researchers who are doing like data augment augmentation, which um, you know, it's, it's almost like uh, very different from what you're doing, which I'm then like extrapolate data using machine learning, which I think it's interesting, but I think what you're doing is probably more practical <laughs> in some sense. Yeah, so I, I think, um, yeah, I think that's, that's a uh, one way of summarizing uh, this, the, this, the answers to this question about how you fit in machine learning elements into uh, economics research. Um, so th this might be, uh, I might be uh, uh, oversimplifying things a little bit, um, but um, I think where machine learning can, can help contributing to economic theory is that, um, um, it it can it can help you like, re relax some um, assumptions that are not directly supported by economic theory. So, for example, if you have a simple model that says a dependent variable y should be a function of a large number, uh, should, should be a nonlinear function of a large number um, of explanatory variables. Um, plus uh, a dummy variable of treatment. And if you want to um, estimate the treatment effects, then um, there, are, there are very good machine learning tools that can help you uh, carry out that task in a very reliable manner. Um, and um, um, a lot of recent advances in econometrics is about how you apply machine learning techniques to a treatment effect uh, context. So yeah, so um, e economics research are always motivated by real questions about people's inf incentives and uh, I mean, people and institutions incentives and how they interact, how they make choices given the constraints and their incentives. Um, so the economic questions are always guided by economic theory, by policy debate, and then machine learning is um, the way I see it is that it's very welcome, very high value tools that can help you answer those questions in, in a more reliable and sophisticated manner. Mm. Yeah. Um, have you, you've worked in the field for quite a while now and based on what you were saying about how machine learning is more of a recent development in the field, how what did like econometrics look like maybe a few decades ago when people didn't have such access to technology? A few decades ago, um, just like uh, yeah. So, so uh, well, obviously there was not not as huge a machine learning um, 
uh, a presence a couple of decades ago. Um, so when I when I started in uh, grad school, um, the the frontier um, part of the frontier of econometrics research was about doing a robust non-parametric inference uh, of all kinds of qualitative response models, like binary choice response models, sensor regression models, um, uh, in a cross-sectional data, in panel data. That there are tons of interesting econometric questions to answer, uh, even without adding in the machine learning aspects. And I think to a large extent, that's still the case today. So just to answer your question, um, how the field was like, I, I, I feel that um, the definition of the, of the frontier um, um, ha has moved, of course. So um, we're doing, we're trying, we're answering a more challenging questions because over the past 20 years, uh, all this smart, uh, spectacular talents, and professors, adding to our understanding about econometrics and we're pushing the frontier in all dimensions. Uh, and that's a continu continuous process. So uh, now with the addition of this machine learning tools, we're opening new frontiers. Um, but in terms of the dy um, dynamics, in terms of the intellectual uh, stimulation in the field, I would say um, it's it has always been lively and dynamic. Mm -hmm. I don't see that that big a difference uh, in today versus 20 years ago. There's still tons of interesting questions to, to, to ask. Mm -hmm. Speaking of the binary choice models, um, I read in your 2013 paper, the semi-parametric inference in dynamic uh, binary choice models that you utilize the Monte Carlo, I mean, Markov chain Monte Carlo method. Uh, I'm just a little bit curious about what that exactly is. Sorry, I didn't get to your question. You're asking what exactly that means? Yeah, like what is the MCMC method? Oh, that's a Markov chain Monte Carlo method. Mm -hmm. So ba basically, um, so that paper that you, uh, you you just mentioned, the 2013 paper with Andrew Noretz, who is mm -hmm. a professor um, at Brown University now. So, um, so that was... Um, econometrics paper that uh, uh, studies the semi-parametric um, identification and inference of dynamic binary choice models. Um, so dynamic binary choice models uh, is a model where individual makes binary choices in multiple time periods. And in each period, the choices involve a trade-off. Basically, a trade-off is between what you can get immediately in the current period versus what you expect to get in the future, in the sense that whatever decision you make today is going to affect the transition of states into the future. So that's where the trade-off comes in. So that's the dynamic binary choice model. And what we did in that paper is semi-parametric identification and inference. By semi-parametric, we mean we relax the assumption on the error terms. Um, and we try to uh, characterize the uh, the set of parameters you can learn from the model. So just going back to a question, uh, what is MCMC and why is this relevant for answering this question? Uh, MCMC, like I said, is Markov chain Monte Carlo method. 
uh, is basically an algorithm that uh, helps you to use simulation techniques to explore the posterior distribution in the Bayesian econometric models. Um, so I, I don't I don't know what is the background uh, of most of the listeners of this podcast, um, but uh, in a nutshell, um, Bayesian uh, econometric model requires you to start with a prior belief about what the parameter is, and then you have a model that allows you to write down the likelihood function, which basically tells you how likely it is for you to see the data that you have in a sample given uh, any parameter value. So when you multiply the likelihood with the, the prior, you get the posterior. And then um, the goal of Bayesian econometric models is to uh, learn about this posterior and then summarize the moments of this posterior distribution. And by that, I mean the mean, the, the, the standard deviation, of your parameters according to the posterior. So the MC, going back to your question, so the MCMC algorithm, the Markov chain Monte Carlo algorithm uh, is a simulation based technique that allows you to uh, characterize the mean and standard deviation of your parameter according to this posterior um, posterior distribution. And it's used in, in my paper with Andre Noritz on semi-parametric inference of dynamic discrete choice model because we have a quite complex likelihood. Um, and that part, partly has something to do with the fact that we are not putting parametric assumptions on the error distribution. So we, we need to uh, design uh, this kind of elaborate uh, implementation of MCMC algorithm to help us explore the posterior in our model. Mm -hmm. The model that your paper developed is uh, applicable to models of finite space of observed states, right? Does that mean that it's only applicable to environments of discrete variables as opposed to continuous? Yeah, that, mm -hmm. that's, a, that's a very good question, Jerry. Um, so in in theory, this um, this models of dynamic discrete dynamic binary or discrete choice, um, it could account for any um, type of explanatory variables, meaning uh, discrete or, or continuous. Um, but when you actually want to estimate the model, um, there is a step that requires you to solve for the value function. So I, I, I won't get into details, um, but the short answer to your question is that um, there is a step of the estimation of this model that requires you to solve for a function of the explanatory variables. So if your explanatory variable is continuous, then the, that function basically, the, you can think of it as an infinite dimensional parameter, right? So if it is a function of the discrete random variables, and if your discrete random variable only takes 10 values, then uh, recovering that function means you just need to recover 10 numbers. But if you have a function that depends on the continuous variable, so then in principle, you have infinitely many possible values of the continuous variable and you need to solve for the infinite dimensional object. 
And um, that is fine theoretically, but in implementation, we usually use this dis discretization, which means that we uh, often discretize the support of continuous variables. And we try to solve for a discretized version of these functions. Um, now with, with the, um, with the improvement of computational power of modern computers. So I would expect uh, in the future, we'll be able to solve similar problems um, with finer and finer discretizations. Um, but yeah, just to answer your question, uh, as far as implementation is concerned, uh, we will be sticking with the discretized version uh, mm. for, for these dynamic discretized models. It's very interesting. Um, also, I believe you say that imposing distributional assumptions can have a substantial effect on the inference and economic models, and that it is more desirable to use estimation models of restrictions implied by economic theory, such as, um, I believe you mentioned, uh, monotonicity. <laughs> Sorry, yeah, yeah monotonicity, yes. Yeah. Concavity and independence. Could you just briefly describe like what these terms mean? And then also when designing complex models such as the one you use, like how how do you know when to use what kind of restrictions? Yeah, that's a that's a very, very important question, Jerry. Um I think these are these are the right questions to ask. So um so uh, again, let me try to set up the framework for this discussion uh for this audience. So you could think of a very simple stylized econometric model where you have a dependent variable y on the left-hand side of the equation. And then you have um, a bunch of observable explanatory variable x on the right-hand side, as well as some econometric error terms. Uh, let's just call them epsilon, so which is the common notation for econometrics literature. So um, uh, in, in a lot of econometric models, um, that there are parametric assumptions on the distribution of epsilon and also on, on the functional form of how X affects Y. So the simple regression model, for example, says Y equal to X times some coefficients plus epsilon. So there you have a uh, parametric assumption, which says uh, the way that X contributes to Y is through this linear index, X times co uh, coefficients. And also a lot of models would put assumptions on the distribution of epsilon. So, um, so there, there are two ways of uh, relaxing these parametric assumptions. So like I said, there are parametric assumptions on X, also parametric assumptions on, uh, sorry, on epsilon, right? So uh, let's focus on how you relax these parametric assumptions on X. So uh, going back to your question about uh, the shape restrictions, right? So like I said, in the very simple linear regression model, you would need to assume that explanatory variable x contributes to y through this linear function x times coefficient. But suppose you um, you are not fully convinced of that restriction. For example, this linear specification has a very obvious limitation, which basically says uh, additional increase in x 
always have the same constant effect on y right yeah. so if you're thinking about x being income y being consumption that basically says an additional increase of $100 in your income always have the same marginal effect on consumption, regardless of whether you're earning $10,000 or $100,000. That's obviously uh, could be problematic assumption to, to impose. So if you want to relax that assumption, there are many ways you can do that. Like you said, monotonicity and concavity, for example. Um, so you could say that um, higher income always tend to lead to higher consumption. So there you have a monotonicity assumption, right? So higher income always leads to higher, tend to lead to higher uh, consumption. That is a monotonicity assumption, which basically says instead of assuming functional form of X times coefficient, you just assume that X enters in the right-hand side uh, through an increasing function. So that is a shape restriction. Uh, the other shape restriction of concavity is basically saying that you have diminishing returns, diminishing marginal effects. So if you believe that uh, if you if your income is increased from say $200 to $300, then that marginal impact on consumption is greater then if you increase the income from $1,000 to $1,000 plus $100. So if you believe the marginal increase of income from $1,000 to $1,100 have a smaller impact on incremental consumption, then that's, a, that's what we call diminishing returns, right? And that's where concavity comes into, comes into, into play. So if you believe that's the case, if you believe that's how income affects consumption, namely that higher income tend to leave, uh, tend to lead to higher consumption, and that the uh, marginal e effect is diminishing as your income level increases, then you want to impose a monotonicity function of income that is concave. So mm -hmm. this is this is a very concrete example of how you impose shape restrictions. Um, into econometric analysis. And um, as, uh, as for independence, that's usually an assumption that restricts the relationship between explanatory variable X and the unobservable error term epsilon. So basically, if you, if you are confident that um, this econometric error term epsilon does not reflect anything that could be correlated with your income, um, then um, then then you you can impose independence assumption. Um, but there are also other settings you might want to question that independence assumption. For example, family family background, for example, right? So so your income level might be related to some elements, some factors in your in your family background. And that unobservable factor in the family background is going to be absorbed by the unobservable error term epsilon. So that will lead to a correlation between epsilon and, and, and the income level X. And, uh, and then there will be a violation of independence assumption. So uh, just to summarize the, in response to your question, uh, I just gave you a simple example of how you can move away from very parametric linear model and use economic theory 
or even common sense to add in the shape restrictions on how explanatory variables contribute to the dependent variables. That is like very interesting because yeah. so in a very basic sense, what you would do is look at um the scenario that you're researching and then what the uh kind of the shape that you're thinking that it will have, you will apply the restriction to it. Um I'm taking like normal like AP statistics right now and I, we kind of do the same thing. I kind of thought it was a little bit like uh unstable if you just kind of use your own um logic to apply restrictions to different experiments but i guess it's like a uh very professional thing to do yeah so it, this this is um this is a core question about um when you should feel comfortable imposing assumptions in your econometric models right so um Basically, the answer to that question is it really depends on the uh, on what is your research question and and what is your data, right? So a lot of times, uh, researchers would need to rely on their own judgment. Like in the example I gave you, uh, that I think that was sensible. Like to assume that income level is uh, positively contributing to consumption, and also. Um, so the, the monotonicity part is definitely very intuitive. The concavity part, maybe you have a different view. Maybe there are some individuals uh, that uh, there are some individuals for whom this uh, marginal impact is actually increasing, right? So there are people who uh, would like to uh, become more aggressively consuming luxury goods when their income level increases. So uh, so the concavity in, th in those cases would, would be questionable. So at the end of the day, it will be uh, basically based on your own judgment. Um, so I think rule number one for doing uh, solid econometrics research is that you should always be mindful, uh, mindful of what you are assuming. You should always be super honest and upfront about what you are assuming when you present your research. And you should also be prepared to discuss what if your assumption is wrong and what would be the other things that people can try, even though you are not doing in this paper. Uh, um, so uh, I think, yeah, that basically summarizes the how how people uh, how people impose assumptions in their research and uh, what you can do to 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 convince the the, the readers uh, or audience of your research that um you have you have been given uh serious thoughts about these assumptions yeah. that makes a lot of sense uh, especially in the presenting research and being upfront about that um another paper that i read of yours is the peer effects of sample selection it's much more uh, recent and you studied the estimation of peer effects on self-selected groups that are formed out of indigenous uh, individual participation decisions. Um, can you just describe the study and also what like indigenous means in this context? Yeah, so uh, this, in in this paper, um, my co-authors and I uh, are looking at the peer effects um, between um, the teachers in Chinese uh, middle schools and high schools. Uh, in the job training programs. 
So basically the outcome variable that we are interested in is how many minutes or in length of time is these teachers stay in each one of the lectures uh, of these training programs. Um, so we want to understand um, what determines um, their uh, length of attendance. So let me give you a little bit more background. So this is this is a nationwide a training program for middle school and high school teachers in China. Um, so th uh, the teachers are, are sign up for this uh, 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 classes uh, voluntarily, and they decide to show up at lectures voluntarily. And when they show up, they also make a continuous decision as to uh, when they want to drop off. Because because uh, you know everything is done online and you log in and if you uh, if you don't like the lecture or if you are distracted you might just log off right so um, we want to understand um, to what extent these teachers' decisions to stay in the lecture is affected by the presence of peer teachers from the same geographical location okay. So, for example, if you and I are coming from the same zip code, and we we uh, we work at uh, schools that are pretty close to each other, and we both show up on this lecture, uh, the fact that I see you logging into this lecture, it might affect my decision as to how long I want to stay in this lecture. So that's what we mean by peer effects. So we want to understand um, to what extent that peer effects uh, contributes to individual decisions to stay in the lectures. So uh, the the interest the interesting part of this question is um, when you want to answer this question, you need to take into account this endogeneity uh, in the selection issue. So what going back to your question about what is the endogeneity in selection. So first, what is the selection, right? So here by selection, we mean uh, this binary decision by these teachers to log into the online classroom or not. Okay, so this these classes are uh, consi were consisting of multiple lectures. So every week, this, these teachers, first they need to make a binary decision whether they want to show up at the lecture. And, and conditioning on showing up in the lecture, they see uh, who who is there in the in the classroom virtually, and then they decide how many minutes they want to spend in the lectures. So here, the selection is referring to the fact that they decide to log into this lecture. And what we mean by endogeneity is that there are some relations between the uh, Unobservable, unobservable individual factors such as commitment and perseverance. So, for example, you you might be a really good teacher. You might be pushing yourself really hard, and this is a commitment fa factor that's not recorded in the data, but it's affecting both decisions. It's affecting the decision, the initial binary decision to log into the classroom. And also it affects the subsequent decision to spend more time staying in the classroom. So that's what we mean by be that's what we mean by endogeneity, which is there is some unobservable factor that is affecting both the selection into the classroom and also the decision on the outcome variable, which is the 
the number of minutes of attendance in the lectures. So if you don't take into account that kind of correlation in econometric analysis, you are going to uh, end up with a wrong estimates of the peer effects. So that's what we do in that paper. We have econometric technique that uh, allows us to uh, deal with this endogeneity issues in the peer effect setting. So just to be fair, this, uh, this technique is called control function based approach uh, has been around in, in the econometrics literature uh, since the late 1970s or, or early 1980s um, by very uh, successful econometricians, uh, uh, James Heckman, for example. Just, um, so what we do in this paper is that we borrow those techniques and we now apply them in this uh, group learning setting where there are peer effects. So we need to do some additional work in order to figure out the right identification conditions. And we need to extend uh, some existing methods to estimate this model. Hmm. I realized, uh, I mean, I saw that for one of the models that you included in the paper, um, you denoted the uh, slow, slower internet speed as like an explanatory variable for their decision to stay on. And that was included in the model as like a uh, quantified vector. I, I was just generally curious about, uh, I know we're almost out of time, but just very briefly, like how would you put an explanatory variable into like an equation like that? Uh, so is, is your question about how you specify this uh, explanatory variable goes into the, the model, or is the question about how you decide which variables to include in, into these equations? So the question I was trying to ask was, I guess, number one, what kind of explanatory variables would you choose to include in your equation? And then two, how would you actually uh, quantifiably define those uh, variables in your equation. Yeah, so uh, about first question uh, um, regarding what to include in the model, um, there are basically two two main ways to to um, decide which which variables to include. One is based on common sense and intuition. Uh, the other is through the guidance of economic theory. Uh, of course, this could be overlapping, right? So the, um, um, but basically, uh, uh, as you econo know, econometric modeler, uh, you, 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 usually you have a pretty good sense of, uh, what explanatory variables are contributing to a dependent variable, uh, at least on the intuitive, intuitive level. And also sometimes economic theory can, can tell you what might also be contributing. So in the, example of um, online lectures of uh, Chinese teachers, for example, um, this uh, idea of including um, the decisions of the, your peer teachers from the same geographical area. So that's that's coming from its uh, econo uh, economic theory about peer effects, right? So then you know you, you should include um, the number of minutes that that the other teachers showed up in the classroom as an explanatory factor of um, your decision about how long to stay in the lecture. Now, about as your second question about uh, the functional form of e explanatory variables. Um, 
So again, uh, for that decision, there is a big trade-off. So you could go for a more parametric ways, uh, the linear ex linear index, for example, um, or you could go for more uh, robust forms, like like just using shape restrictions. So the, the trade-offs is that uh, when you impose more stronger functional forms about how the explanatory variables enter into the model, the more reliable statistical inference you can have, which means that conditioning on your functional form assumption being correct, you are getting more accurate estimates of your model. Um, but the cost is that uh, you 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 are open yourself to to this uh, potential risk of misspecifying the model. Okay. Um, now, if you take a more robust approach, or you just let the economic theory to tell you uh, uh, which which shape restrictions you want to put, so that you go for a, a non-parametric or semi-parametric model, then um, the the benefit is that your model is more credible because it re relies on fewer functional form. Uh, uh, assumptions, but the cost is that when you estimate a model, uh, your estimator is going to be harder to implement and you would require more data in order to get uh, statistical uh, reliability. So, so to answer your second question, uh, it's it's actually uh, right at the core of econometrics. Like, um, uh, given given your data size, given the number of explanatory variables, what kind of functional form you want to choose, and there is this trade-off, and you just have to make the decision yourself. And when you present your research, like I said, uh, you could think about, you could say a few things about um, uh, what if I uh, add a, a bunch of more of. Uh, explanatory variables, what if I experiment with different functional forms, how does that change the result? So those those are called robustness checks and people often do that re in research. Hmm. So in the end, what was the what were your findings with the uh, group of Chinese teachers? Yeah, so we, we do find substan substantial peer effects, positive peer effects, which means that um, if you and I are coming from same geographical region, uh, uh, and we, we're both Chinese school teachers, um, the fact that I see you in the classroom uh, will have a positive impact on, on my own uh, decision uh, about how long I want to stay in the lectures. So there is a positive association between the number of minutes you spend in the classroom and the number of minutes I spent. So that's the first finding. Uh, the second finding is more hypothetical, which is uh, if we ignore this sample selection issue that I just mentioned. So just remember that sample selection issue is referring to the fact that you, there could be some unobservable factors like individual commitment, perseverance, um, that's generating the decision to show up in the lecture as well as the decision to stay longer in the lecture. So if you don't account for that kind of correlation, you're going to end up with a wrong estimate of the peer effects. Yeah. Hmm. Yeah. Um, it's, um, a more general question about uh, academic research as a whole. The paper we're just discussing is like a working paper. Um, does that mean that you would have to get it um, like looked over and approved by other researchers before you can publish it? 
yeah, so that's what we call the review process. So um, working paper basically means that you finish the paper and you are in the stage of uh, you know showing the paper to other researchers. So you could do that at conferences. Uh, you could go to uh, other universities and present at their seminars and get feedbacks. Um, so usually I, I, I post my working papers and I present it on a couple of occasions, get some useful feedbacks, and then I finalize it before sending it to a journal. So once you send it to a journal, an academic journal will uh, invite anonymous referees to review your paper and uh, oftentimes it might take a couple of rounds of revisions in order um, to incorporate and deal with the comments from the referees before the paper can be published. Mm. Um, I have a final question that's not so much econometrics related. I think uh, if we were to talk more about your field of study, I would have to do much more research about the uh, technical stuff. Because I'm very, I'm very interested, but I would have to know more about it. Um, I so, think you're on a good. I think you're at a good starting point. Yeah, I mean, with <laughs> your help, definitely went up a bit today. <laughs> uh, maybe we can save it for a different episode. But uh -huh. um, from 1998 to 2001, you worked at the People's Daily newspaper as an uh, associate director of international affairs uh, in Beijing. What was your experience like working there? Yeah, so um, I don't know if you and the audience are familiar with the with the media industry in China. Um, so that paper I used to work for is one of the biggest newspapers in China, and uh, uh, my job was to to be in charge of the uh, international liaisons. Uh, for that newspaper. So what it means is that um, we sometimes invite uh, journalists from other countries to come over to China and we help them arrange uh, interviews and we we, uh, we help them arrange trips and show them around. Um, and also uh, part of my job was also to uh, you know, read and listen uh, to uh, international news sources uh, like CNN, like Washington Post, and translate them into Chinese and uh, get get those translated articles published on the Chinese newspapers. Um, so yeah, it has been uh, it was very fun experience. Um, it's quite different from uh, academic jobs, but it was uh, initially um, what got me interested in all those. Uh, uh, you know, uh, economic and uh, social issues. And uh, plus, I also like uh, quantitative, applying quantitative methods to answer socioeconomic questions. Uh, that event, that work experience with a newspaper eventually led to my decision to um, go to um, grad school in the US and get a PhD in economics. Hmm. It's very interesting how you made the transition from journalism to economy they're very um, they're both as you said about dealing with socioeconomic issues and also like people so i just want to thank you for your time uh, that's all the questions i've prepared all right thank you jerry i will I enjoy, oh, enjoy talking to you i enjoy talking to you too yeah. in the description of the episode i'll leave the links to your published papers and your um, website 
so the viewers can check it out. Okay, thank you, Jerry. Thank you so much for listening. And special thanks again to Dr. Tang for sitting down for this episode. If you have feedback or questions regarding this podcast, please contact the Framing Effect PC at gmail.com. Please follow us on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Amazon Podcasts, and our Medium newsletter and Instagram. And be sure to tune in next time.